Well, let's face it. Let's face it, there are times in our lives when we just want to know that we're in the hands of an expert, isn't it? There's times in our lives when we just want to know that we're in the hands of someone who knows what they're talking about, who, in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing, someone competent, an expert. And so, for example, doctors, right? You know, when you go to the doctors, you want to know that. I mean, the last thing you want to do is go to the doctors and say, doctor, doctor. I've got acute appendicitis. And then in reply, hear them say, and you've got a cute little button nose too. <laughs> and when you go to the doctors and you're going in for major surgery and they're about to put you under anaesthetic, then this is the last thing you want to see. Right? <laughs> No, 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 no. When you go to the doctors, you want to know that you're in the hands of an expert, not, not some clown. Uh, someone who knows what they're talking about, an expert, an authority. There's just too much at stake, isn't there? And the same is true when you're boarding a plane, isn't it? I mean, the last thing that you want to see as you're boarding a plane is the captain sitting in the cockpit, madly cramming a copy of Flying for Dummies. Okay, that's the last thing you want to see. No, when you're getting on a plane, you want to know that you're in the hands of an expert. Again, because you're placing your very life in their hands. And so it is with our eternal lives as well. In fact, when you think about it, there's nothing more important than our eternal destiny, is there? And so when it comes to our salvation, it's important, very, very important. No, in fact, essential that we are in the hands of of an expert. Of course, as Christians, it's in Jesus Christ that we've put our trust, isn't it? The one who says that he can bring us into God's kingdom. But the question is, you know, to what degree can we really rest assured that Jesus really knows what he's talking about? To what degree can we confidently put ourselves in his hands? especially when we live in a world where Jesus is just one voice among many claiming to have the ultimate answers of life. It's a big question, isn't it? And there's a lot at stake in the answer. And so tonight we're going to spend some time thinking about this question as once again we turn our attention to the Gospel of Matthew. And if you don't already have the Gospel of Matthew open in front of you, can I encourage you, grab a Bible now. Uh, turn with me to chapter 22, uh, Matthew chapter 22, it's page 699 of the small print, 1535 of the large print Bibles. Now you might remember that Jesus is now in Jerusalem, okay, he's ridden into the city, riding on a donkey, declaring himself to be the promised Messiah, uh, the Christ, uh, the one who was to come and rescue his people. And by this stage, Jesus has attracted a lot of attention, both positive and negative. There are now large crowds listening to Jesus and cheering him on. But then there are also the religious leaders who have, on the whole, denounced Jesus as some dangerous crackpot that, that needs to be silenced. These uh, religious leaders were, of course, the experts of the day in all things God. Uh, they were religious experts who claimed to have the ultimate answers of life. 
But now Jesus was posing a serious challenge to their authority, a challenge that they resented. The people were now starting to look to Jesus as the true expert. And so today, the religious leaders set out to do something about that. They set out to discredit Jesus publicly, once and for all. And they do that through a series of three questions that they ask Jesus. Three questions. The first question comes from a group of leaders called the Pharisees. Now, of course, the, the Pharisees were a bunch of religious leaders. They were very influential among the people of Jesus' day. And they had now put their heads together and decided to trap Jesus, to trap him in his words. In other words, to try and make him say something that will totally discredit himself and uh, take away people's confidence in him. But it would be far too obvious if they themselves tried to do this. I mean, they've already had way too many run-ins with Jesus and he'll be suspicious if they try and do it. And so instead, they get some of their disciples to do the dirty work for them, along with another influential group, uh, the Herodians. Now, what's really, really interesting here is the fact that the Pharisees and the Herodians are usually quite opposed to one another. They're, they're rivals. Uh, the Pharisees, you see, they resent. They resent the fact that Israel is under Roman rule. They resent the fact that Caesar is their ruler. Uh, they want independence. But the Herodians, on the other hand, well, they're really quite happy with having Caesar as their king. They're really benefiting from that. They, they support Roman rule. They're in favour of it. You see, they're, they're rivals, enemy factions. But here, the Pharisees and the Herodians are willing to put aside their differences in order to trap Jesus. It's nice to see the way that Jesus can bring people together, isn't it? Anyway, they go to Jesus and they disguise their evil intent with all kinds of flattery. They try and butter Jesus up. And then they ask their, trip, their trick question, oh, so innocently, Jesus, they say, is it right for Jews to pay their taxes to Caesar, do you think? But the thing is, their question is far from innocent. It's a trap. Because you see, it doesn't matter if Jesus answers positively or negatively here. Either way, he's either going to incriminate himself or discredit himself. Because you see, if he answers no, no, it is not right for God's people to be paying taxes to some foreign dictator who calls himself a god, well, if he says that, then, well, the Herodians will simply, you know, charge him with trying to um, incite rebellion. If, on the other hand, Jesus answers yes, yep, it is right and good for us to be paying our taxes to Caesar, it, we... You know, he's such a good guy. We've really benefited from him. Great Roman culture amongst us now. Or if he were to say, you know, he's a really scary guy, let's just pay him. Then he's going to totally lose face with his Jewish audience. Because unlike the Herodians, most people resented the tax. Most people resented Caesar. So you see, this is the perfect trap. 
But significantly, Jesus can see right through the hypocritical insincerity of these leaders. He knows exactly what they're up to. And so he doesn't shy away from their question. Instead, he asks his questioners to show him a coin. They'll dig into their pockets and they find a coin. They bring him a coin. They give Jesus the coin and then Jesus looks at it and he asks them a question. He says, tell me, fellas, who's face can you see on this uh, coin? And whose inscription can you see on it? Now, of course, this one's got Queen Elizabeth's, but the denarius that Jesus held in his hand, it had Caesar's face and Caesar's inscription, and so they, they tell him so. And then Jesus goes on to make the simple, simple conclusion. He says to them, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. In other words, don't steal. Now, if this coin belongs to Caesar and not to you and he wants it back, then give it to him. It's so simple that no one can deny the logic. But then Jesus goes on to take that same principle to its ultimate end and says that in the same way, no one should steal from God either. And where Caesar is owed, what, a coin... Well, God is owed so much more. He's worthy of all we have, our very lives. Why? Because we bear his image. So we owe him everything. And obviously Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders here for their failure to give God what he's due. Just like the evil tenants that we heard about in that parable of the tenants uh, last week. Do you remember? And significantly, when the religious leaders hear Jesus' answer, they've got nothing to say in reply. They're dumbfounded. Read with me from chapter 22, verse 15. 22:15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity, And that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. They left him and went away. You know, what's really, really amazing here is the way that Jesus is not only able to look into these men's hearts and see their evil intent, but also how in one fell swoop he's able to answer their question, avoid being incriminated, avoid being discredited, and even rebuke these religious leaders for their failure to give God what he's due. (laughs) It is the perfect answer 
It's ingenious. It's amazing. It's Jesus. And it leaves these so-called experts scurrying away with their tail between their legs. Well, meanwhile, another group of religious leaders, the Sadducees, have come up with their own plan to discredit Jesus. Now, the thing that makes the Sadducees distinct from other groups like the Pharisees is their theology. Uh, In particular, the Sadducees don't believe in any resurrection of the dead. No, for them, once you're dead, you're dead. That's it. No more. They also believe that only the first five books of the Old Testament are scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's it. And so now it's these Sadducees who come to Jesus with their own trick question. It's a question involving a case study on the resurrection. Now, apparently they know that Jesus teaches the resurrection and, and of course, they don't agree. And so they tell this hypothetical story, a hypothetical story of a woman, a woman who is married but whose husband dies before they can have any children. And so in this story, then, in obedience to the law of Moses, uh, the dead man's brother then marries the widow to look after her and to give her children. But then he too dies before they can have any kids. And then this happens over and over and over again until seven of this woman's husbands die. And then finally the woman herself dies. And and if there was a brother number eight, I'm sure he was probably breathing a sigh of relief at that point in time, knowing that he wasn't next. Got to worry a little bit about this woman's cooking, don't you? But of course this whole scenario that the Sadducees have come up with here. It's meant to be absurd. Okay, it's an absurd story because by it, what they're doing is they're trying, they're hoping to try and tie Jesus in knots. And so then they ask their question, so Jesus, as uh, one who believes in the resurrection, tell us, tell us all, tell us all, which of these seven brothers will be the woman's husband at the so-called resurrection. I'm sure they couldn't keep a straight face as they asked their question. Obviously, they're trying to discredit the whole idea of resurrection here and so in the process discredit Jesus who teaches resurrection. But then, without blinking an eyelid, without muttering an an um or or an uh, without a scratching of the head, but as quick as a flash, Jesus gives his reply. He says to the Sadducees, you're wrong. You're wrong. Your whole premise for the question is wrong. You have based your scenario on the idea that resurrection life is exactly the same as this life. But no, it is not. No, in the resurrection life, there will be no marriage. Just like the angels don't marry each other, neither will people in the resurrection life. And then Jesus goes on from there to hit out even more against these Sadducees. In front of all the people listening on, Jesus declares that these Sadducees, these religious experts, are wrong because they neither know their Bibles nor do they know the true nature of God. And then Jesus proves it. Referring to a verse that comes from a part of the Bible that the Sadducees themselves accept as true, Jesus asks them, 
Haven't you read that bit of your Bible where God says, I am, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? In other words, don't you see that long after the death of these patriarchs, God continued to be their God? That's because they're not dead. They're alive. They live on. You see, it's not my teaching on the resurrection that's wrong. It's your teaching that once you're dead, you're dead. That's what's wrong. And as the crowds listen on, they are understandably amazed at Jesus' answer. Read with me from verse 23. Verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second. And third, right down on to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error. Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And so in a flash, Jesus turns the Sadducees' trap back on themselves. And in the end, it is not he that is discredited, but the Sadducees. Because you see, he, Jesus, is the true expert on the things of God here. And as the crowds see all this, it's no wonder that they are astonished. Well, meanwhile, back in their lair, the Pharisees have been licking their wounds and uh, hatching a new plan to discredit Jesus. Now, last time they made the silly mistake of sending in their wet-behind-the-ears disciples and, and those useless Herodians to do their dirty work for them but this time they're going to get it right this time they're going to send in the big guns they're going to send in the attack dogs they're going to send in the crack team that's right this time they're going to send in the lawyers and so they get one of their experts in the law and have him ask Jesus the one question that will surely discredit him The Pharisee's lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him, he says, so Jesus, of all the laws that God gave Moses, which one of them do you think is the greatest, the most important? Okay, now think about this. 613 laws we're talking about here. 
613 possible answers here. And of course, whatever answer Jesus gives carries the risk that someone else might have a different choice than he does. And so that person could easily accuse Jesus of minimising the importance of some equally scriptural law. And so any answer here risks Jesus alienating a whole bunch of people. But amazingly, again, without hesitation, Jesus gives his answer, love. That's it. That is the greatest of the 613 laws, love. Love God with everything you've got and then love people too, love. And when Jesus gives this answer, the lawyer rubs his hands together and he declares, aha, I got you, Jesus. In fact, no, he doesn't. In fact, you know what he says? He says nothing at all. Because he can see the absolute brilliance of Jesus' answer here. Read with me from verse 34. Verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see what Jesus has done here? It's amazing. By focusing here on love, rather than on some other law, what he's able to do is he's able to lift the whole discussion from being one of competing rules to being one about a priority of a principle which stands behind all of the 613 laws of Moses. Because ultimately, all of God's laws were based on this one principle of love. Love of God and love of neighbour. And so the expert in the law is... He's left with no comeback at all. He's left with nothing to say at all. Jesus has given the perfect answer. Because you see, Jesus is the true expert of the law here. And all this Pharisee can do is stand silent before Jesus' amazing wisdom. But then in the final part of today's passage, we see that there's one last question asked. The only difference is that this time, it's Jesus who does the questioning. Uh, This time, Jesus asks the Pharisees a question. A question which, on the face of it, seems to be the easiest question of all. He asks them, he says, so guys, answer me this. You know the Christ, the Christ, uh, whose son is he? You know, the promised Messiah, whose son is he? And you can only imagine the faces of the Pharisees when Jesus asks this question, you know, no doubt rolling their eyes to the back of their head. This is such an easy question. I mean, this is something they were taught in first year Pharisee college. Messiah 101. Of course the Christ will be the son of David. 
Everyone knows that the promised Messiah will be the descendant, the son of David, and so they say so. But then Jesus asks a follow-up question. He says, okay then, okay guys, so tell me then, why is it then that in the Psalms, uh, David once said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit beside me until all your enemies are defeated. In other words, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, sit beside me until all your enemies are defeated. Now, it's a little bit tricky, okay, but the question behind the question here is, if the Messiah is indeed just the son of David, then why on earth would David call him Lord? No one would ever call their descendant Lord. You might call your forefather Lord, but but never your descendant. In other words, the Pharisee's answer is, well, it's inadequate. It's it's incomplete somehow. The, The Christ is the son of David, yes, but he must be much more than that too. And so the Pharisees are left scratching their heads. They, they have not got an answer for Jesus. They're completely stumped. And we're told that from that day on, no one, not one of them, dared to ask Jesus any more questions in order to trap him. See, they're beaten. Read with me these final verses from verse 41. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So there you have it. The religious leaders absolutely stumped by Jesus. They cannot reconcile how the promised Christ can be both the son of David and yet at the same time the Lord of David. They can't do it. They can't reconcile it. But of course we can, can't we? We can because we know that the promised Messiah is not just the son of David, but he's also somebody else's son as well. He is the son of God. The the God-man who, in the person of Jesus Christ, came to rescue his people and bring them into God's kingdom once and for all. And if the religious leaders had ears to hear, then they would know that Jesus was talking about himself here, the Son of God, the the very same Son that Jesus spoke to them about in the parable of the tenants last week, the, the Son of the landowner sent to the vineyard to collect his father's fruit. You see, Jesus is claiming here not only to be the Son of David, a descendant of David, but he's claiming to be the one and only Son of God. And friends, when you understand that, 
then this whole episode of questions and answers makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? I mean, suddenly you can see why it is that Jesus is actually able to answer all these really tricky testing questions without even batting an eyelid. Why? Because ultimately, he is the expert at experts. Ultimately, he is the one who wrote the book. For him, this is easy peasy. But friends, if that's true, then I guess we've now got to ask ourselves the question, what, what significance any of this has for us here tonight? You know, 2,000 years after this interchange between Jesus and the religious leaders, what significance does any of it have for us here tonight? Well, I think the easiest way for us to answer that question is for us to imagine for a moment that things turned out quite differently that day. For us to imagine for a moment that Jesus was not able to answer any one of those questions. Imagine for a moment if one of Jesus' answers that day was pass or uh, can I phone a friend? Imagine if he discredited himself or incriminated himself. I mean, surely then, friend, your faith in Jesus as the one with the ultimate answers to life would have to be just a little bit shaken, wouldn't it? Surely then your trust in Jesus as the one who claims to hold the key to your eternal life would have to be just a little bit eroded, wouldn't it? Like a doctor who thinks acute appendicitis is something adorable? Or a pilot who needs to cram flying for dummies before taking off? Jesus too would not be worthy of us putting our lives in his hands. But friends, that's just not the way that it happened. Oh no. No, on that day when the best and the wisest and the most learned came out in all their might against Jesus, looking to take him down, in the end it was Jesus who was the last man standing. And he showed up all his opponents as fools. It's just like what Isaiah prophesied and the Apostle Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. You see, friends, there is no one like Jesus Christ. His wisdom is beyond measure because he alone is the Son of God, the unique God-man, the true expert, the true authority in all matters of God and of matters of life in his kingdom. And the one who will one day silence all his foes once and for all when God the Father puts all his enemies under his feet. So friends, what do we do now then in the light of all this? What do we, what do, we do now? Well, I think it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, surely like those crowds long ago, surely now it is our turn to stand in astonishment at Jesus Christ. 
and to marvel at his awesome wisdom and understanding. Surely it is now our turn to go, wow, Jesus. Wow. All honour and praise and glory belong to you. And surely, just like those religious leaders long ago, now it is our turn to stand silent before Jesus' almighty, unparalleled wisdom. For us to now recognise that when Jesus speaks, there is no comeback. And then for us to take the next logical step from that, the logical step that those religious leaders never took, the logical step of us now obeying Jesus, whether it be in our paying of taxes or living in the light of the resurrection life or or in all things being guided by that overriding principle of love, whatever it is, it's about us now letting Jesus have the final say in how our lives are lived. And finally, friends, and most brilliantly of all, I think, surely the significance of all of this for us here tonight is that now we can confidently put our trust in Jesus and follow him. We can confidently put our trust in him and then, and then relax. That's right, relax. Breathe easy. Relax. Resting assured that our eternal life, our salvation, is not just in good hands. It's in the best hands. It's in the hands of Jesus the one and only Son of God. I ask you, what greater confidence could you possibly have than that? Let's pray. Oh, our Father... Our Father, we thank you that Jesus has indeed shown himself to be the true expert in all things you and in all matters of life in your kingdom. Father, tonight we stand in awe of him and we praise him for his incomparable wisdom. Father, in all things now, please help us to listen to Jesus and to obey him, knowing that his answers are always right and good and that to reject his wisdom is to choose foolishness. And Father, as we now entrust our lives into Jesus' hands, please help us. Help us to now forsake all our doubts once and for all that we might now confidently Enjoy our salvation, knowing that we could be in no better hands than Jesus, your divine Son, in whose name we confidently pray. Amen.